Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mean O-Line Media presents Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast, where each week we examine the most pressing issues in the criminal legal system. I'm your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. As we settle into today's show, don't forget to subscribe, download, follow, rate, and comment. I'm on Twitter or Instagram or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts like Spotify, iHeart, Amazon Music, or TuneIn. So let's jump into it today. I have two very distinguished guests with me today. Um, I have Dr. Angie Hattery and Dr. Earl Smith. They are not only amazing professors, Um, But they are authors who tackle some of the most difficult subjects in the history of policing and policing in general. Um, The reason I wanted to have them on, I am actually teaching one of their books uh, this semester at George Mason University, specifically called Policing Black Bodies, How Black Lives Are Surveilled and How to Work for Change. Welcome to the show, Dr. Doctors. (laughs) Thank you. It, it, it almost sounds like a, a music show. Doctor, doctor, can you give me some news if you remember that? If you're old well, enough to remember. Yep, I remember. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to the show. I, I'm going to jump right into this because the ideas around policing today um, have more attention, I think, over the last, say, five to seven years than they've had in decades. Um, and I read in the book, That's one of the things that prompted you to write about um, policing black bodies is the um, high profile killings of and so many killings of unarmed um, black men in America. And I'm being specific in saying black men in America. So we don't dilute um, and use BIPOC, which we understand and appreciate or communities of color or black or brown people like black men in America are typically ones who die at the hands of police when they're unarmed. If, if I'm correct in that. Yes, absolutely correct. So, so Doc Hattery, then talk to me then about why you wrote this book. Um, and then I'm going to dive into some of the stuff that's actually in the book and some of your presumptions and assumptions about policing that we need to hold dear in order to move away from this uh, current tragedy of, of dying at the hands of police. Doc Hattery? Well, first of all, you know, thank you for having us. Um, Why did we write this book? We really love that question um, because it gives us an opportunity to to really talk about how the process unfolds and how scholars really do their work. And I think artists, you know, do their work similarly. Um, So, you know, it's 2014, it's 2015. Like a lot of people, we're sitting around, not sitting around, but we're consuming news media. And we begin to see that, that you begin to have this explosion at around that time um, of young black men in particular who are young, unarmed black men who are being killed by police or police surrogates. So we have Trayvon Martin. We have uh, Mike Brown, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling. And, you know, I can't even list them all because there are so many. 
And like a lot of people, we're, you know, watching and listening to commentary about that. And one of the things we notice is that where these police killings are happening and kind of other things that are going on, no one's paying attention to, one, the history. So I love how, you know, you started and said, wow, there's all this attention the last five to seven years. You know, for me, and I think many of the conversations that Dr. Smith and I had, one of the conversations was, wow, you know, the tragedy of Trayvon Martin, has anyone, have people forgotten Emmett Till? Like, this is not the first black man who was killed by, young black man who was killed by police surrogates. So part of it was thinking about how do we help our students, since you're also teaching in the classroom, how do we help our students understand there's a history to this? Um, But secondly, we had been working for at least 10 years, I think by that point, on wrongful convictions and exonerations. And so kind of what's going off in our conversations is, wow, these these same communities where unarmed black men are being killed by the police are the same communities that have, for, for the most part, high rates of wrongful conviction and exoneration. They have histories of what we would call race riots um, or pro, you know social protests. And we didn't really see or hear anybody else connecting all those dots. So it was as if these shootings of unarmed black men by the police or police surrogates were happening in isolation. And we were like, no, it's not in isolation. It's part of this larger pattern. And so that was really how we began to think and talk about how can we put together an argument that helps people understand the history, but also the interconnected nature of these various phenomenon. So Doc Smith, can you build on that argument? Because one of the things I really love Um, And they do have a website, Smith and Hattery, um, if you go on their website about the work they do and how they do it. Um, The one thing that you specifically say on your website is like you bring this from a sociologist perspective. You don't bring this from a sensational perspective at all. You you come with the facts. So although the writing is very intense and the writing is very emotional um, and, and really digs a lot into um, the lived experiences and perspectives of individuals. Dr. Smith, though, you all don't come at it from that point of view. You say, we're going to examine this through a lens of facts, policies, and procedures. Um, and you even say that we bring the facts um, with us. How, how did you write in such a way that you could humanize something that can be very sterile, like facts? You know, um, and again, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, sociologists are trained to be objective. And since we both are trained as sociologists uh, in different institutions, when, you, when we talk to each other, we know exactly what we're talking about because the objectivity issue is built into the curriculum. I don't care where you go to university, you take sociology, it becomes your major, you're working in that area, one of the things that's hammered away at you is objectivity. And that means not getting involved in the issues that you're studying. And it doesn't matter what your topic is, you're simply supposed to go get the facts through a specific methodology on how how you get those facts. And when you write about it, whether it's a book or, or article, or you're giving a talk, you simply tell your audience what are, what's behind those facts. How do those facts come together? I, I'm not supposed to tell you 
that I'm very emotional when I hear about Emmett Till, uh, Mike Brown, or my brother. So I'm supposed to just tell you this happened. What we did since this is 2016, 2017, uh, we both made conscious efforts to remove ourselves from that training, to simply say that 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 doesn't go for us any longer. And we've written articles and I think one book that was a part of that objective notion. What we've said, I think, in this book and some other places is we want our readers to be to have full access to what we're talking about. And that comes with bumps and warts, et cetera. Uh, I'm going to get very emotional when I talk about some of the people in our research, uh, when I'm trying to explain to you why uh, Black women, for example, are losing their kids in childbirth even if they are not, quote, among the lower classes. Because the excuse could be, well, they're lower class, so therefore they didn't get, uh, you know, pre-medical uh, treatment or attention. And when you do the research, you see that many of these women who lose these children are not lower class. And I, and I think the classic example for us, since we work in the arena of sport, is... Uh, the history of what happened to Serena Williams when she was having her child. And she definitely is not among the lower class. So we try to leave objectivity right where it belongs, you know, in the dustbin and let people see as much as we can show that some of these things that are happening to black people, uh, whether it's unarmed, uh, whether it's women in childbirth, whether it's athletes being told how to dress, uh, even though they're millionaires, um, this is all a part of what happens to black people under this umbrella of white supremacy. Uh, it all starts there. Um, I don't care what the subtop what the subtopic is. White white supremacy is everywhere in the work that we do. And maybe we oversee it, but I don't think so. You know what, I, I'm, I'm gonna give you that. No, I, I think, you know, as myself, um, who is a social and decision science major in almost every aspect of the work that I do, but when I was doing my uh, dissertation and research and, and, going, and pursuing my doctorate, I used a method called portraiture. Um, which is Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot. Not many people use that. It's literally where the researcher acknowledges intentionally and bracket their, their biases, right? We're supposed to bracket those biases. That's what they teach us in sociology. And that just means nothing more than acknowledging them and how they might influence our research. Her approach is similar. She says, you know what? You can't take the motion emotions and the way we respond out of it. In fact, the researcher does better research when they connect themselves to the work and can align with it as long as they acknowledge where they can have some biases and things of that nature. So, so Doc Hattery, I'm going to have you jump in and finish that because 
Dr. Smith says something really interesting. You know, when we see policing black bodies, the first thing we think of is, you know, old school, whoop, whoop, sound of the police, lights and sirens and things like that. But the book goes on to say something, and you're way ahead of your time on these two things. Uh, Doc Smith was talking about the policing of black women's bodies um, specifically. And um, I'm glad you brought this up. And I think it was about three years ago, two or three years ago, came out of the University of Pittsburgh, a study about black women and their mortality rate um, during birth, childbearing time, and their infant mortality rate. And it echoes exactly what Dr. Smith said, that, you know, in Pittsburgh, um, black maternity mortality rates during childbirth are extremely high in Pittsburgh, regardless of their social and economic status, how often they saw um, an obstetrician, had the vitamins, they're doing the checkups. There are people like me who was reading everything like what to expect when you're expecting, you know, and all the other crazy stuff, but they're dying at higher rates. And you all explain why you believe the policing of black women's bodies have gotten us to this outcome today. So I'm so glad that we could talk about that, this topic, because I think the policing of black women's bodies gets far less attention. You know, it's, it's much more dramatic. It's, it, you know, if it leads, it leads, so to speak on the news. Um, but the toll that economic inequality, that the history of white supremacy and enslavement has taken on women's bodies is in many ways far greater, but it, it's not, you know, it's happening everywhere. And so it doesn't get the attention that it should in the media. I think Serena Williams' experience, sadly, brought some attention to that. But, you know, it, it, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about um, Black women's bodies as different, the same and different than Black men's bodies. And, and, in, and much of what makes their bodies different and their experiences different, we're arguing, is their sexual and reproductive bodies. And clearly, I think, well, maybe it's not clear to everyone, but the roots of that go clearly all the way back to the period of enslavement, right? When the Black womb, you know, in 1619 was something that needed to be policed in order to produce economic commodities. Um, and Kimberly Crenshaw argues that the black womb produced $12 million in commodity. And that was in 1619 dollars, not today dollars, right? So the black womb is policed to produce commodity. And then after the period of enslavement, the black womb is now viewed as dangerous because it can produce you know, people who can become criminals and people who can become disruptors and people who can become, you know, activists and agitators. And so once again, the black womb has to be policed. But in, in this time, you know, and, and to now, the policing is about not having, right? So it's about not about controlling fertility. And I think that shows up in two ways. It shows up in the way of literally controlling fertility in the sense of black women's bodies and their wombs have been policed and continue to be policed. And, and people might be familiar with forced and non-consensual sterilization, um, and that's horrible. Um, but people might not realize that today, in many of the communities that we live in, young Black women, as young as 12, 13, 14, are being recruited into birth control programs. Um, usually they're called LARC, Long Acting Reversible Contraception. Um, for your listeners, those are things like Depo-Provera, um, what we used to call Norplant. Um, and that those are very specific ways in which Black women's reproductive bodies are being abused and policed. 
Um, and I, you know, I think to your, to your final point, um, if we are, if we, if, if we don't value the black womb and the, and the product of the black womb, then we don't really care about infant mortality and, and maternal mortality, right? Another black woman, um, who dies in childbirth is just, you know, can be constructed as just another black woman not have to worry about anymore, another black child. And I can blame the mom, you know, as you said, Dr. Brackney, like, um, you know, she didn't take prenatal medicine, you know, prenatal vitamins. She didn't go to the appointment. She didn't do this. She didn't do that. When in fact, it's the biases and the racial, uh, the racial discrimination that's baked into the medical institution and, and, and the healthcare system that is really to blame. But it all comes back to worth. Is the body, does the body have value? And, and not only does it have value, I have an interesting quote about um, Christian Williams wrote, um, Our Enemies in Blue, Police and Power in America, right? And he, he does talk about police, but the second part of that is power. And whoever holds the power, we use these systems, whether it's institutions of supremacy, um, that manifest themselves in uniform police bodies, or whether it's medical personnel, like the recent study that just came out of the University of Virginia, always either two or three as the um, top-ranked public universities in the nation. And they just did a study and a survey. And still in 2022 and 2023, the doctors were saying that they believed that when Black women were coming for care, they were either attention-seeking they were medication or drug seeking, or they were over exaggerating um, their symptoms, um, or that they still believed they had higher levels of pain tolerance. And they still believed, and this is again, 2022, 2023, that they weren't as emotionally connected and bonded to their children um, and, or to their health outcomes as their white female counterparts. Um, this is 2022 and 23. The University of Virginia just did this survey. So if we have these top institutions that are, you know, lauded as the most progressive institutions, the most forward thinking, and they still have these eugenic style beliefs about black bodies, how do we move then um, away from this? Um, as Kristen Williams says, how do we move or think about with class as with race? It is the status quo that the police act to preserve and it is the interest of the powerful they seek to defend, not the rule of the law or public safety. How do we move from that? Like, this doesn't seem like we can. I mean, I've spent 38 years in policing. How do you dismantle and deconstruct institutions of supremacy that are anchored in whiteness and patriarchy. That's a lot. Dr. Smith, you jumping in there? I'm going to do this quickly because uh, I want uh, my colleague to have a piece of this question. Uh, the first thing that happens, and especially for us in academe, is to understand the ideology of these institutions themselves. Policing is an institution, and it's an institution that has, how do you say it, unbelievable levels of power. Uh, this shows up, for example, in our research on exonerations. And, you know, people, people come to the courthouse, the person who's been sitting in prison for 30 years comes out, they got 20 microphones there, 
and everybody's jumping up and down and we should be happy. But when we do the research here, we say, I'm not that happy. And I'm not that happy because on the front end, the front end of the exoneration is the police. The police did something to lock that person up. And 30 years later, we find out what they did was unlawful. The person gets out. They got to fight this, the state or whoever for the compensation for the time they were incarcerated. And nothing ever, ever, ever happens to the police or the prosecutors. I mean, that's power. You know, you can, you can just throw people in, in prison, let them rot there because the other people in prison, they all say, oh, yeah, you didn't do it. You know, you're telling us you didn't do it, but you're like us. You, you must have done it. And then when they get out, these same police, nothing happens. And we have big cases of this, especially in places like Chicago. Uh, so recognizing the problem is the first thing for trying to dismantle it. Andrew? Yeah, yeah. And I'm going to let Doc Hattery jump in. And one of the things you said about it is recognizing the power. Um, we're going to get to this because I have our students this week. They're watching a movie called Walking Wild Black. Right. Um, and it's by A.J. Ali. And he says, love is the answer. Right. He says love is the answer. Um, does work at UVA. And he has on a person who was intentionally, intentionally put in prison. Um, a black male by a white male. A lot of this was about statistics, all these programs where you're trying to get your numbers up through CompStat, broken windows theory, and all these other crazy things that are trying to bring back in. I mean, Bratton is writing all over the newspapers about how great he was and these, you know, stop and frisk policies. Doc Harry, jump in there and finish that so that we can then challenge, or maybe we don't challenge, then maybe love just is the answer. Um, I think love is great. I'm all about love. I think love is fantastic. I think empathy is really important um, because I think when we can understand another person's plight, we can care about it, which is, I think, what you were really describing at the beginning of the podcast. We use facts, but we also use stories because stories move people. Um, but I think hundreds of years would tell us that no amount of love is going to topple systems like white supremacy and patri heteropatriarchy. Um, I think that, uh, that that's going to require a lot of work in dismantling. And the real problem isn't that I don't love you. The real problem is that I'm embedded in a system that whether I love you or not as a white person allows me to engage in discriminatory behavior. Right. Or if you're a man, you can love me all you want to, um, but you're embedded in a system of heteropatriarchy that allows you to to engage in discriminatory behavior, whether you like it or not. Um, and so I think we have to address systemic power um, love along the way, too. But I'm going to, you know, cop the perspective a little bit. And I want to use the example of reproductive um, violence to illustrate. I'm going to cop what many black feminists have said all along, which is when black women are free, everyone will be free because of the position, the unique position Black women occupy in the systems of heteropatriarchy and white supremacy. And I think that one of the things that we've seen happen in the last three or four years is an awakening, at least on the part of some white women who have said, I didn't see it coming. And Black women ha are saying to us, well, you just weren't paying attention. So if we think about um, 
the decision, the U.S. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, I think it caught a lot of white women off guard. Like, oh my gosh, how did that happen? We've been working. We've been doing these things, right? I imagine Black women said, they've been policing my womb all along. Now they've come for you. And so that same sort of, you know, I don't know who who's responsible for it, but, you know, they came for so-and-so first and I didn't stand up. They came for the next, I didn't stand up. And finally they came for me. And I think when we can realize that once a system is harnessed, it can come for different people. Um, the, the, the focus of that system, whether it's controlling women's reproductive lives or wrongful convictions can come for the next group that's at the bottom or the next group that becomes the target. And so no amount of love is going to get us out of that. Um, And I think those are lessons that white people need to really take um, from our black colleagues who've been seeing it for a long time. Doc Smith, I see you itching to jump in there. We're going to let you jump in there. Go for it. When I heard that line about they came for you and for me, and now they come for you. This is James Baldwin, preface to Angela Davis's book that I think was the first book after she was released from prison. And Baldwin, in in the you know in his poetic style, uh, oh gosh, you, if you when you read that few pages of the preface, you never forget it. And I think this was 1971 or something like this. Uh, so I just wanted to say for the listeners, you, you should go back to that text. Uh, it's powerful. Um, so that was why I was raising my hand. Yes. And you know what? And we recently uh, attended, um, shout out to Bus Boys and Poet down at 14th and, and you. My husband and I just recently attended um, Dr. Cornell West um, was there announcing his run for presidential candidacy. And, you know, my Husband and I are both news junkies as well, right? We consume a lot of, he much more than I do political news. After a while, I'm like, we don't turn it to the food network. I'm going to die here. So we were there. And what the one thing that about his platform for presidency is that um, something similar, that you've got to give dignity to people. You've got to see them for who they are and understand exactly that, that, You know, when you're putting up these signs, basically, and this is me paraphrasing, um, Black Lives Matter, and then the next thing you know, you know, All Lives Matter, and it's co-opted by Blue Lives Matter. Um, What you really do at that point in time is you you, you become disingenuous. You have just said that Black Lives don't matter to Dr. Hattery's point. And for instance, um, there's something you even say about it is... um, that you use these examples right now, everybody's talking about racial justice. There's these protests and chants, white silence equals violence, black lives matter, no justice, no peace, which is no racist blank police, right? But what we don't talk about really is the policies that allow these systems to continue to operate the way that they operate. One, the Innocence Project. You're exactly right. I know few, if any, officers who have, intentionally, intentionally place someone behind, not something that was accidental or that there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. Almost every one of these these persons who are part of these exoneration projects, whether it's the Innocence Project or making of an exoneree at Georgetown um, Law Clinic and Law Center, there was some intentional act of wielding power 
and knowing they would be believed by based on who was wielding that power. And what are the kind of policies that you believe that we should be going after? Um, and I know you're, I'm, I'm going to uh, punt this softball one to you because you have a new book out too about one of the systems of power that we should get rid of because it's used and so it's inhumane and it's used to do nothing more but to cause more punishment. Um, you want to talk about your new book? Sure. That's a, a wonderful softball. I would, I guess I would start by saying that just kind of connecting and pulling the thread back through wrongful convictions happen for all the reasons that you said, but they also happen because black bodies don't matter because we have a very good friend who was wrongfully, we became friends after he was exonerated. We didn't know him before, but a very good friend who was wrongfully convicted and ultimately exonerated. And he spent 20 years in prison. Um, he's a black man who spent 20 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And that was the rape and murder of a white woman in the South. And as we learned more about the circumstances and got to know him and other people, he was just a disposable black man. And white people in the community, when they were polled by the local news organization, the newspaper, you know, do you think he should get compensation? Do you think he should be let out of prison before the formal exoneration? You know, like two thirds of the white folks said, no, he should probably stay there because he must have done something wrong or he never would have been convicted. And the perspective was really maybe maybe locking him up saved the white community from future crime he might commit um, that, you know, he was just kind of a throwaway body. And so I think it's important to understand that that is also part of the policy. Um, it's embedded in that, you know, his body didn't matter. Um, and the same thing we would we argue is the case. So the book is called Way Down in the Hole. Um, and Way Down in the Hole is based on lots and lots of many, many, too many hours that we spent um, doing ethnographic research in solitary confinement units in a state prison system, which meant, means for the listener who's like, what the heck is that? That means that we literally went in um, into the solitary confinement units, which is very unusual for people who are not working in the system. Um, even most lawyers don't actually get into the into the solitary pods. They are interviewing folks in the waiting room, in the visiting room, uh, through glass, of course. Um, but we went and spent many, 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 many hours there um, and talked to everybody that we could, including COs, correctional officers, um, lieutenants, sergeants, but also people incarcerated there. And you know, solitary, talk about out of sight, out of mind. Solitary confinement is the most invisible place on the planet. And we argue in the book that that part of the reason it's proliferated is because the most of the people you've locked up there are black and brown. And, you know, it's like the missing black woman thing. It's like the missing black girls. It's like those bodies don't matter. And so we can do whatever we want. And by we, I mean, white people can do whatever we want to those bodies. Um, because, because they don't matter. Or as Kimberly Crenshaw says, you know, they're almost this preordained to be criminal. And so we're kind of solving, <laughs> solving the problem, right? That doesn't really get at your question about policies and practices, but I think it's so important to understand. Um, right. Because our policies and practices are based on our ideas and beliefs about who or what needs to be regulated, right? And even if it's a policy or practice that is neutral, you know, as the way we're supposed to um, look at it as researchers. What I tell people all the time is, 
Um, we invite all these people to the table about policies and practices, but and we never invite them to the table about how they're implemented because that can be just as devastating um, to communities and to black people as the policy itself, right? Because people are afraid to give up power. And if I'm gonna give it up and I'm gonna lose it on the policy end, I'm gonna recapture it on the, on the implementation end, or I'm gonna profit off of it in another way. And what we also don't discuss and something you say is really important in the book is, um, all of your books actually, right? Policing Black Bodies and the, the new one in the hall is, the reason we don't wanna dismantle any of these systems is because they're all based on profit and capitalism whether we want to admit that or not. Like we are a capitalistic society. We are about the dollar dollar bill and we believe in making money off of black people, right? Off of black people to the detriment of black people. And you talk about the prison industrial complex has become this system by which we can fund basically jobs, government, um, private industry, 401ks, you know, uh, they used to have a sign or the saying that crime don't pay. And I used to say crime doesn't pay for every crime pays for everybody except the one person who's convicted. Everybody makes money off the backs of the one person that they are going to put into or introduce into the criminal legal system. Whether it's the officer, the bailiffs, the judges, the district attorneys, the defense attorneys, um, the bail bonds person, the sheriffs, the transportation teams. Let's talk about the building and construction companies, the, the food service providers. Everybody makes money off of that body that goes in. And they talk about the cost of a person to be incarcerated. They almost make you think that that cost is strictly their housing and food. But they factor in the fact that you got to pay a judge to sit there and hold these cases, right? And things of that, that nature. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Um, walk me through your ideas about why we can't dismantle the prison industrial complex, particularly as um, it's used to police black bodies and even values about um, families and what families look like, right? It's being used very intentional to define what a family looks like. Yeah, we, we um, spent a little time in the book talking about the military industrial complex and uh, the military industrial complex is probably an institution that is hidden away from people who aren't pursuing the question. So when you think about the military industrial complex and we're being told that, you know, after Vietnam, after Korea, that you really don't need these big armies anymore and, you know, you don't need fighter jets. But someone said once that if you took this one airplane, the B-52, which is still in existence, um, parts for the B-52, because it's old and needs replacement parts, parts of the B-52 are made in every state in the United States. So 
in all these states, you have some entity that's making some part for this B-52 that keeps people, as you indicated, um, I'm going to use the word chief because I heard your producer say chief. I like that. <laughs> um, you know, the parts are made so people still have employment. When you get over to the prison industrial complex, prison building didn't really start until probably after the early 1960s. Up until then, black, white um, rates of incarceration were similar. Once you start building these prisons, and I'll use the state of New York as an example, um, you go up on the tip of New York and all you see are prisons. And when people ride the prison bus from the Port Authority up there to, to visit loved ones, et cetera, uh, they have to endure all the stops along the way as the bus is stopping here, there, and someplace else. Uh, and that gives you an idea of all these prisons that are up there. Once the conversation starts about closing the prison, that's when you see these politicians saying, you can't do that because the, the, the milk farms and, and, and the other kinds of farms that were there before are no longer profitable. And they're, they're no longer profitable because of capitalism. They're no longer profitable, profitable because now you have agribusiness, big, big corporations taking over those little farms that families for decades did the farming, you know, packaged the goods, sent it to market. All that's now uh, revolutionized machinery, but big companies own those farms. And so the prison becomes a substitute for what was essentially the agricultural economy. Um, you start talking about closing them and you got a problem uh, close to riots. People are saying, you can't close these prisons. So they figure out a system of shipping uh, prisoners from this county to that county where they would have naturally been housed to other places to make sure the beds are full. Um, we, did a, we did a talk in front of government officials in North Carolina. I think it was Charlotte. I'm not sure. And everybody was sitting around the table. They was looking nice. Everybody had on clean clothes and uh, had been elected to office. You know, these little petty offices that they have in these some of these legislatures. And the minute we showed the data on the non-profitability of prison building, people weren't nice to us anymore. I mean, before there was, oh, doctor, professor, thank you for coming. And the minute we lay that out, I think we were being ushered out of the room. Uh, because, you know, they knew whether it was profitable or not, they were going to build those prisons. In fact, we went to a town, little old town, that had two prisons side to side. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, Dr. Hattery, but, you know, side to side in a little community, largely black in South Carolina, I think, or North Carolina. And I'm thinking, gosh, how, how do you have two of these things right next door to each other? And depending on who you talk to, 
people were saying, well, there were some jobs. When we looked into it, we found that the people who came in to work in those prisons came in from the outside. Right. So they passed the laws to get the prisons built based on false information, that there was going to be gazillion jobs and people were going to get work, et cetera. And then they brought in people from the outside to staff these uh, places. And that, that makes sense. Right now, and in, in, uh, Doc Hattery, I'll let you jump in. Right now in Pittsburgh, their juvenile detention facility has been closed for years. They just invested $50 million to reopen it. To reopen it. I don't even want to have the conversation about what you could do with $50 million besides lock kids up. But here's what's so interesting. The first thing I said is, somebody's going to have to pay for that $50 million. Someone needs a return on that investment, Right. Because the city has to be able to say, well, this was well-invested money. Either crime should go down, and we know more policing, more laws have nothing to do with the ebbs and flows of crime rates. But you say something really interesting in your book about just this thing. The more prisons that are built for profit rather than rehabilitation, the more people who must be incarcerated. Simply, prisons only make money when the cells are occupied. Therefore, policing black bodies. And then you go back to Angela Davis and I'm throwing up my power sign. I wish I had a fro. Um, As Angela Davis so aptly put it, once prisons got into the business of incarceration in a capitalist economy, there was no other option but to grow. Corporations, quote, corporations that appear to be far removed from the business of punishment are intimately involved in the expansion of the prison industrial complex. Exactly what you just said. I can't shut down Charlotte's prisons or High Point, North Carolina prisons in these little small places because it affects their bottom line. And when you said you were in Charlotte, the first thing I thought of is home of NASCAR. They were rushing you out of there faster than some of those NASCARs during Prohibition. So, Doc Hattery, you're jumping in there. So I think, but you know, part of part of it is exactly what you have both been describing and talking about. And I would add that the neck, the other layer to it is that the the prison industrial complex and the expansion in prison, the exponential growth in prison, also begins on the tail end of the civil rights movement. And so the, we argue that you know, the part of the system that's happening here is yes, prisons have to grow, but whose bodies have to go in there. And it's not just the bodies that are disposable or bodies that we don't care about. It's also a way of reclaiming power. So, you know, it's not a surprise that Jim Crow comes on the tail end of reconstruction. It's not a surprise that prison becomes the next way to remove black bodies um, after the civil rights movement. That's not coincidental. That's absolutely on purpose. Um, the more gains people make, I, I would argue that, you know, that this might be, feel a little far-fetched to some people, but I don't think it is at all. I think the the turning back of the guarantees of reproductive justice under Roe, it's not surprising that those come when women have finally begin have begun to make some gains. Probably not surprising it comes after you have the first black woman who's the vice president, the first woman of any race who's the vice president. Um, black people gaining power scared white people and unsettled the system of white supremacy. And the response was, well, we can't reinstate slavery. Jim Crow has become too embarrassing. 
we've got these prisons, this becomes another alternative. And, and to, to really, I think it's so important for your listeners, it's not just the locking up, it's the stripping of civil and human rights. Because when you lock people up, you take away their rights to vote, you, through a lot of other policies and procedures, end up basically taking away their right to work. You take their rights away to, you know, create it. You mentioned it before, Chief. I like that too, Chief. You mentioned it before. You break up the ability to function as, as a family unit. Um, you put incredible stress on families. And so this is yet another way of disrupting the Black community and removing Black people's rights is a very powerful way to do that. So without you even realizing it, you're going into my next question um, because, you know, right now um, there's all of these fights, um, political fights around the concepts of being woke and DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? I always add welcoming and belonging is, is where I feel more than welcoming and belonging. So I'm going to lead you right into this one as the, as the segue to our, our final segment here is you have an, a, a chapter on intersectionality, um, colorblind racism, right? Colorblind racism is a way in which we police it. But here's what's so interesting how you start this off in turn, talking about rights. You started out by saying the Declaration of Independence begins with the statement that all men are created equal, that all men have a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I love this part. We would hardly be the first to point out that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States of America were penned by men with incredible privilege. White, slave owners, landed aristocrats, men who did not see their exclusion of blacks or Native Americans or women or poor whites as in any way contradictory to their principles, simply because they believed that blacks and Native Americans and women and poor whites were socially, socially biologically and morally inferior. They weren't left out. They simply weren't entitled to those rights promised in the constitution. Um, that sounds very much like the discussions that we're having today about um, who has rights and, and who doesn't, right? And how we're policing bodies, uh, particularly black bodies, and once they've made gains. One of them is, the overturning in the Supreme Court of quote unquote affirmative actions. So not only just bodies, but the ability to access educational institutions that our forefathers, founding fathers, didn't believe were for black folks to start. Well, um, when, you, when you think about rights and who has access to those rights, we know that black folks didn't have access to those rights because it, as a slave, uh, you had no rights. You had no family uh, rights. Fast forward to DEI and affirmative action, all of those types of entities were put in place by, who knows, political actors, by people who felt they could get, they could gain something. I don't know what Lyndon, Baines Johnson's uh, real philosophies were, but he just happened to be the president in place who signed off on all those great society programs. All those things were done because some people knew that they really owed black 
people something for the injustices that they had to live under. So you fast forward to our time, and you got these folks, many of them who are Harvard, Yale, Stanford educated, who are claiming to be regular, you know, white men who are writing these cheap laws, uh, putting them in place. And the biggest one I can think of right now is overturning Alabama's uh, voting, uh, you know, map that kept blacks out of the voting booth. And you say, well, you're born in America, you automatically have that right to vote, at least now. These are politicians and others who are deliberately making sure that not enough black people vote. And once you understand the electoral college and all these, how these things work, uh, you corral people out of the system that allows them to do that, and then you call it a democracy. All of these things are on the table, the stupid word woke. They're all on the table to say, these people don't deserve anything. And then taking something, I'm going to go way off track here, taking something like Black Lives Matter protests, lawful protests, and lining it up against the attack at the Capitol and saying these are equivalents and that the attack at the Capitol was a, was a wonderful day. Uh, but those people who, you know, burned down, a, I don't know what they did in Oregon, but they burned down a police station, I think. I'm not sure anybody was killed or stabbed or beat up, but politicians are sitting there saying these are equivalents and lying with a straight face that there was nothing wrong with what happened at the Capitol, even though, even though white people were killed. So we have, we have a big problem, uh, um, Chief, in this country where all of a sudden it's okay to lie against where we started this conversation against facts, you know, uh, there's nothing factual. And it's a whole new industry of simply telling something that's not true. It's an industry. You know, we got people, and they're all in Congress, and, and, you know, maybe that institution wasn't any better back then than it is now, but it's on TV, and it's on social media, so we can see it more clearly than, than we used to be able to see it. And it is rotten to the core. So you have... Uh, a George Floyd Justice Act that everybody was oh over the wheel on George Floyd. We're going to do this, that, and the other because this young man was killed and he shouldn't. Oh, every police, corporations, Starbucks, you know, Goodyear, Google, everybody. We're going to put this act in place so we can get rid of things like qualified immunity and whatnot. Who's Blocking it with the biggest hurdle, a black politician from South Carolina who's going around saying that slavery wasn't that bad, uh, discrimination doesn't exist. And I don't know what kind of words you use to, to, to call these people out, but this is, this is horrible. And he goes to places, white places like New Hampshire, Iowa, and tell these white people these things. And they sit there and clap and they eat pancakes. Uh, and I'm thinking, what kind of boo, 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 boo 
is this. What kind of character? I mean, and this is what you're up against. And it's a constant struggle. You know this. Uh, you know it from Charlottesville. Uh, when when that thing went down, when you were the chief of police there, uh, it's it's policing black bodies on steroids. You hear me? That's that's what's happening today. And if we could find that twenty fifth hour in the day, we would pump this book up again, revitalizing, updating some of the things we talked about because it is necessary. Um, so that, I'd work with you on that project. I oh, mean, I would work with you please. on that one. I would just all be all into it. Doc Hatter, I'm going to let you bring this to the, the, to the, to the barn. As, um, I, I heard from my Southern, I'm a city girl um, by everything. But basically what Dr. Smith just said is, we've got people pushing this colorblind narrative who... As he said, one of them is a senator from South Carolina who claims he was raised in a public housing community that we used to refer to as projects with a single mom and saying he's never been discriminated against in his life. And this is a this is a obviously black appearing man. He's not like he's white appearing or could slide into the quote unquote air quoting passing. I'm pretty fair skin for someone who's who's black. Um he ain't got none of that going down for him, but he's touting the this colorblind narrative. Um, and if he thinks they're going, the Republicans are going to put him in the White House, uh, let let him go ahead with that colorblindness. What's the dangers of that kind of messaging? That he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. He's never been discriminated against as a black man. He's never felt the wrath of that system. Um, I, yeah, I, I can't even go there. But what's the dangers of the messages of colorblindness coming from someone like him or somebody like a Governor DeSantis or somebody here? I'm in Virginia, um, Youngkin, who's doing the whole CRT colorblindness. We advocate for every Virginian lie um, that there is to be true as they fly Confederate flags literally a half a block from my house um, that I currently live in, right? So how dangerous is that, particularly as the pushback from police who say, we don't see color when we're arresting people, right? We don't see color. We just see criminal. We just see the laws. The laws are black and white. And I'm like, well, so is the policing. But what's the dangers of colorblindness? Well, I mean, the first question I have back is how much time do you have? But to try... <laughs> To try to boil it down and and pull just a couple of threads to to kind of bring us back where we started, um, I think the the for me the biggest danger of colorblind racism is that it it's back to the sort of if we just love everybody the problem will go away. Colorblind racism invokes an individual explanation. It invokes a if I just think differently or look at someone differently the problem will go away, and it distracts us from paying attention to the structures. And I think the beauty that both of you talked about someone like Tim Scott, I would add to the discussion Clarence Thomas, who you know wrote in, in the opinion as it related to affirmative action, um, and you know someone like, um, oh, I can't, now I'm blanking on her name, but the new woman on the Supreme Court who wrote in favor of overturning Roe. Um, Amy Coney uh, Barrett. Yes, Amy Coney Barrett, thank you. I try to forget her name. 
Um, it also underscores that the bodies we occupy are far less important in this kind of discussion than our places in the institutional structure. So can Black people participate in policies and practices that are dangerous for Black people? Yes, because they're not because because they're reverse racist, but because they are they they occupy a position of power in a system that is built on white supremacy. White women, women of any color, can sit in positions where the policies and practices that they implement are harmful to women, not because they're being reverse sexist, but because they're occupying that position. So for me, the most dangerous, two dangerous things about colorblind racism, one, it distracts us from the institutional nature. And two, it makes white people feel awfully good. You guys were referencing Tim Scott in particular, um, saying that colorblind racism, you know, slavery wasn't that bad. Black people did better under slavery. That just absolves white guilt and it absolves white responsibility and makes white people feel really good about the whole situation. So I think that's that's a real danger because the last thing we want is for is for anybody of any identity to be uh, distracting us to think that it wasn't that bad, that we should just, you know, this, it, it reinforces the, the, the thing that a lot of white people say is can't black people just forget about it? Can't we move on? Can't we move past that? Well, we can't move past that as long as we have a constitution, as you so aptly pointed out, was written by white men who were landed and slave owners and heterosexual and cisgender and all that other stuff. And although we have Tim Scott and we have Clarence Thomas and we have black people and women in those bodies, those bodies are still occupied. And by bodies, I mean the Congress, the people writing the laws, the Supreme Court is still absolutely ensconced in that power of white supremacy and heteropatriarchy, regardless of the actual body that's sitting there. Dr. Smith, final comment. I see you jumping in there. I, I have to ask your producer, where we talk about policies and practices, it's important for the listener. I mean, this can get very technical and, you know, you got to look around to find examples. But for policies and practices that look neutral but are not, our favorite example is crack and powder cocaine. The, 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 the arrest record, um, who gets locked up for what they have in their pocket or whatever, I mean, there is nothing clearer than the powder crack uh, issue. And it's still on the books today. It's just been lowered a little bit, but it's still there. Everybody knows, but it's still there. And people yeah. are locked up for it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, what's so interesting right now, and as we wrap this um, discussion up is, the current discussions about where marijuana weed is now legalized and people can get licensed to sell it. In those same states, there are people in prison doing life because they were part of a three strikes you're out for now something that is absolutely legal now. So now that it's legal, should there be a revisiting of that? But here's what happens. If you bring more people out who might be able to participate in a legal economy, you take away the opportunity from those people right now who own the majority of the dispensary licenses, who own the majority of the grow licenses or the farming license. They're white, right? They're white and wealthy. 
And the one thing I argued about legalizing it, it would never benefit the local street corner person. You know, if I'm on the corner and I've got my hustle on and I'm, you know, carrying and doing whatever I'm doing and I'm a black male, there's going to be some white person who calls on me and says the thing that I'm doing is illegal. Right. And so that person gets charged with a crime. The black male gets charged with a crime under that current system. Now that it's legalized, he's out there selling it again. He doesn't have a license now. He doesn't have um, approval by the state. That same white person is calling on him and saying, what he's doing is illegal. Like he can't win for losing. Um, so that's part of the problem there. I have had an amazing discussion. I would have the two of you on as like co-hosts. You could, you could come back to me any day of the week. Um, I would love to thank my guest, Dr. Angie Hattery, Dr. Earl Smith. Um, please, to my listening audience, if you have not read their book, Policing Black Bodies, or their new one out in the whole, or all the research and articles that they've written, go on to Hattery and Smith, their website, and educate yourself. Um, you will be pleasantly, pleasantly surprised, but shocked about what is going on in our nation and you know what? The more we sleep on it, um, the less woke we are, the more likely this is still to happen in our nation. Thank you so much to my guest. So this end of shift report for me um, is really personal. Dr. Smith and Dr. Hattery, policing Black bodies, um, they brought it home. I mean, they really brought it home to push us away from the traditional way that we think about policing Black bodies, like incarceration, you know, the arrest, the charging, the uniform stuff, because that's the easy on the front end stuff. The real um, genius and what they wrote is the way in which we control, the way in which we regulate, the way in which we surveil black bodies to include the black womb. And as Doc Hattery said, until a black womb matters, it really doesn't matter. No matter what the hashtag is, no matter what the sign is, until we understand the significance and the theoretical framework um, in which all of these institutions of supremacy operate. They operate out of a system of power and they operate out of a system of control and they operate out of a system of profit. And the danger, the danger of not recognizing how black bodies are policed lead us to these policies that claim racial colorblindness but in reality are set in just that, acknowledging whiteness in all of its power, in all of its, its, its institutional power, but in all of its supremacy. And until we dismantle the systems of supremacy that continue to police black bodies, black bodies will be policed from here through eternity. To our audience, thank you for listening. Please tell someone about the show and don't forget to subscribe, rate, follow and comment on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the end of my shift. I am 1042. Catch you next week. The Black Arm of the Law podcast is hosted by Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Executive producers Ken Johnson, Steve Tompkins, and Rashal Brackney Wheelock. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Spotify, the Mean Old Line Media app, or where you get your podcast. Follow Black Arm of the Law at BLK Arm of the Law on IG and X. 
Follow the Mean Old Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean Old Line Media. Get the Mean Old Line Media app in the App Store and Google Play for more great podcasts. The Black Arm of the Law Podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.